What's today? Our fast. All right. Good job. Um, what we do every single year, oftentimes I have, I've had a struggle in the past when it comes to churches, and I've worked in several churches, is the idea, are we teaching our children, are we teaching ourselves, are we being taught spiritual gifts? Um, are we being taught spiritual disciplines? Are we being taught how to read the Word? Are we allowing ourselves to learn how the Holy Spirit speaks to us? And i got to be very honest with you that that, that has been a, a missing link in the Western church, whether it be the disciplines, whether it be uh, the understanding the gifts, whatever it may be, there are things that are missing. And we as a church, when we started the plants, we said, there's a couple things we need to do. We need to help people identify their spiritual gifting, and we also need to teach them the spiritual disciplines. And so every single year, what we do is we go on a fast, okay? And so we still have bagels back there, all right? That doesn't mean we haven't taken everything away. But we're going on something called a Daniel fast. And we talked about this last week. I taught through Daniel chapter 10 and why we're doing this. And basically, what our challenge as a church is, is to position ourselves in the posture to allow God to speak to us. That we are positioning ourselves in a posture that as we go into year 2013, that we are going to allow God to speak to us individually and collectively. And so if you don't have one of these, and you maybe say, let's say you're here for the first time, you're like, that's something that I've always wanted to do. There is a yellow sheet of paper on the back that explains what we're doing. We're starting it today, and we're ending it February 2nd, okay? It explains different things to fast from. It does not mean for the next 21 days, all you're allowed to drink is water. That's not, don't do that if you've never done that before, or you may die, and we don't want you to die. But there are things that fasting ideas would be media television, Facebook, whatever it may be, iPhones, all right? Who needs to fast from their iPhones? Most of you. Certain foods, sweets, sugar, ice cream, or anything that you may eat too much of. Any of us have that, uh, that nervous twitch that when life is really stre uh, stressed out, what do we do? We run and we eat uh, the Oreos, the ice cream, whatever it is. It, it really becomes an unhealthy attachment in our lives. And we're saying for 21 days, just back off. Step away. Or lastly, let's say that you've been doing these fasts with us for, for some time now. And you're saying, you know what? I want to just, I want to try something else. We want to invite you on a Daniel fast. And on the sheet, you will find out the great tools to understand how to do a full-fledged Daniel fast. You can talk to Susie Wilson, who's wearing a, the Packer jersey. Okay, Aaron Rodgers. Okay, uh, you can talk to my wife back there. Sue, just raise your hand. Okay, you can talk to myself. And here's the beauty of spiritual disciplines. Disciplines are things that we, we grow into. Um, I love telling the story, and Eddie hates me every time I say this, but I'll never forget the first time we did a Daniel fast. Oh, there you are, Eddie. I was just looking for you. The greatest was Eddie said for 21 days, I'm not going to drink beer or eat steak. And that was a huge thing in his life, not because he's a raging alcoholic, but he enjoys his steak and a good brew, okay? Let's admit Many of us enjoy a good brew and a great steak. But he said, you know what? I'm going to push it away for 21 days. And each year, he's added to that. Okay? He's done different things. But the lessons that he has learned has been tremendous of how God would speak to him in the little avenues of his life. And that's important. And I really believe that when we fast, all we're doing is we're putting in our, ourselves in a position 
and a posture to hear the voice, the Holy Spirit of God. And that's my challenge to you. Um, one thing you'll know about me, if you know me, is that I never ask people to do things that I don't do. Fasting has always been a part of my, 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 my rhythm of my life because I want to know God. I want to know what he has in store for me. And there have been times when I have fasted and God has said nothing. And there have been times when, when I haven't fasted and God has said a lot. And then there's been those times when I have fasted and I've just seen spiritual breakthrough. And there are many of you in, in, this, in this room that is just fed up with the same stuff. And you've done everything in your power to do what God has called you to do. But there's always that wall. And you don't know what that wall is. And what we learned in Daniel chapter 10 is that there's sometimes that there are spiritual forces, demonic presences, that keep you from experiencing the fullness of God. And I'm not going to shy away from that because I am too much for you to keep anything before you for what God has in store for your future today and tomorrow and for always. And I love the idea of fasting because it is very difficult and it is very hard but when you participate in partnering with God, he opens amazing opportunities to see him in a new light. We don't do this to get a gift. We do this to seek our creator. All right? Any questions? Any questions? On the back of that yellow sheet is your opportunity to walk through half of the book of Mark. Every day we just have Mark chapter 1, like today's Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 15. You read it, you flip the page over, there's questions that you can answer. If you go on our website, this is all posted up there. As you know that we are highly web-based to keep you informed of, of growing in Christ, of knowing what God is doing. So I want to challenge you, whether you are a junior hire or whether you are an adult, choose something today. Choose something. 21 days, give it up and see what God wants to do. All right? Cool. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to go into the Word today. Um, it has a lot to do with that song that, that Josh sang, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And for anyone who has come from a certain background where you have seen a radical change in your life, you have dealt with cynicism, with a cynical person, with a person that says, yeah, right, let's see if that sticks, let's see if that lasts. Cynicism, it's simply this. An attitude of jaded negativity, especially a general distrust, distrust of the integrity or professed motives of others. It's a jaded negativity. And all of us at some point have experienced this. And I will say this, some of you may struggle being that individual. And oftentimes we get to these places in our life where we are just about to thrive and succeed. And all of a sudden, that attitude steps into your life and it has the power to squash it. And so many times we can look back and we can see that and just say, I wish I never listened to those voices. I wish I never listened to that individual because that person had the, had the ability and the power to squash what God has in store for me today and for the future. But here's what's so interesting. We're going through the book of Mark. And what we are going to look at today is a passage 
in which Jesus had to deal with this himself. We think it's just us, that people look at us and question us, and question our growth, and question our abilities, but we are going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus had to deal with it, and how did he overcome it, and how do we overcome it to experience the fullness of God in our life. So do me a favor, grab a, a, a Bible, whether your own or someone else's, and turn to Mark chapter 6. Does someone have it in? What page is it? 603. Okay? 603. And we are going to read it together. I will give you a minute. Six oh three. Here we go. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, Where did he get all this wisdom and power and the power to perform such miracles? Now stop here. What we know is this. Jesus left his hometown at a certain time, in his 30s, when he was 30. And he left his hometown to follow the call of God. He went into the wilderness and he was baptized. And he was given the Holy Spirit. He was sent into the wilderness to go through temptations and trials. And then after his temptations and trials, he went and he began to live on the mission that God had for him which is making the kingdom of God known. He taught about the living God who loves, who loves all of humanity so much that he sent his son. And he revealed this by miraculous acts. He healed the lame. He makes the blind see. He brought someone who was sick with, with an illness for 12 years and brought complete healing. And he also delivered people from oppression from the demonic and emotional oppressions of our world. And so as everywhere Jesus went, the crowds grew more and more and more. And it was so interesting because whenever Jesus taught and performed miracles, all of a sudden there would be these huge crowds. And as the crowds got bigger and larger, and were engaging in this, in this teaching with him, Jesus would always say, let's go to the next village. And it's interesting because in our humanity, we would think, Jesus, why don't you just stay in Capernaum? Build a huge temple. Have everyone worship you. And just let them come to you. But instead, Jesus always did this. He always went to the people. And he not only went to the people of Israel, but what we talked about several weeks ago is that he crossed the line. He crossed the lake and he went to the Gentiles. And he went to people who worshiped foreign gods. And he revealed himself. He revealed the living God to them. And the same miracles and the same teachings that he was giving to the Jewish people, he was performing and teaching with the Gentiles. And the crowds were huge. Matter of fact, when Jesus crossed that lake, he had boats following him. It was like they were trying to keep up with him in the kayak and the canoe. They didn't want to lose touch. They want to see more and more of what he had. And he crosses the lake and he does this huge miracle, this huge deliverance. And then he goes back to Capernaum. But for some reason, Jesus goes back to Nazareth. 
his hometown, where he grew up, where everyone knew him. They knew Jesus when he was six and eight and 12. And he steps into the synagogue and he starts teaching again. And all we know is about his teaching is that it was amazing. And he was performing all these miracles. And as his neighbors were listening to him. And here's what you have to know about Nazareth. Nazareth was a little village of 10 acres. There were maybe 200 people that lived in Nazareth at that time. And so everyone knew him. Everyone was his neighbor. Everyone was his relative. Because in Jewish customs, that's how you treat one another. Your village is your family. But as they're watching him and as they're listening to him, they're just amazed that, wow, look what he's doing. Look what he's performing. They can't believe it. They're in awe. But all of a sudden, in the, the, the midst of this excitement and amazement, let's see what it says. Verse 3. Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Little trivia question or little answer to some people's question, did Jesus ever have brothers and sisters? Yes. Every Jewish family had multiple, multiple, multiple children. I have four kids, and most people think that, wow, you have four kids, you're crazy. Well, you know what? We just adopted two more for the next three weeks. And so we are a family of six children, and it's a blast, and it's fun. And on top of having six kids, we have two dogs and a lizard. Don't ask me why. But with that, Jesus, too, had siblings. He grew up like everyone else. But the interesting thing about this little section is this. In their amazement, they became astonished. In their amazement, they became astonished. And look at the word they use, and they scoffed. Has anyone ever scoffed at you? And they questioned. And they challenged. And we're not in the midst of this situation, but you wonder if on the spot, well, it did, it says that. But I wonder how much of this was pointed at him instead of being pointed amongst each other. Who is this guy? The son of Mary? I mean, think about this. We know how little towns talk. We know how Mawa talks, and it's a town of 26,000. Imagine a village of 200. I mean, think about if you live in Hawthorne or Midland Park or Allendale, these, these smaller towns of 7,000 people. Everyone knows everything about everyone. And there comes a point that when, when something bad in your, in your life happens, you just you want to disengage and move. But here it's even worse. Isn't that Mary's son? Aren't those Jesus' sisters? We know his brothers. We know the story of his birth. Oh, we remember him. 
And all of a sudden, these negative, raw emotions come out. And why? Because Jesus was successful. And not successful in the world standards, but he had become something of significance. Even Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, when he met Jesus, and he found out that he was from Nazareth, what did he say? Does anything good come from Nazareth? Is it possible that, that anything significant comes from a, from a little 10-acre village of a population of 200? It's kind of like when Sue and I lived in Glen Spey, New York. Where the heck is Glen Spey? Over the mountain and through the woods, past grandma's, grandmother's house we go. And we lived in this little place called Glen Spey. And it's very much like Glen Spey. Does anything significant come from Glen Spey besides shotguns and pickup trucks? What's that? Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts, you're right. Girl Scouts. Girl Scout camp. But here's the thing is, the cynical person, the cynic, cynicism, steps into the life of Jesus and we know in our humanness what that has the power to do. But here's what I think it's important for us to look at. To look at the cynic. And there's two types of cynics. The first is a personality. It's a personality. It's that personality that, that sees the negative in everything. It's the personality that says, when someone says black, someone, they say what? White. When they say that it's nice out, they say it's gloomy out. When they say that someone's about to be successful, they question their judgments and motives. When something good is about to happen, they step back and are distrustful of the success of anyone but themselves. The only thing that they hold on to are those things that have stood the test of time. And even those things they question. It's a personality. Whether that was something that happened from, their, from growing up or something they were just born with. And anyone knows that, who has children that sometimes our kids come out of the womb and, and they just have these personalities like, where did that come from? How are they so positive? How are they so negative? How are they so energetic? How are they so quiet? But the cynic and the cynicism is a personality. It's a personality that is bent to questioning everything and always falls on the side of negativity. And it's fair to say in this crowd of people in the synagogue that there were those personalities. And we all know those individuals. We know them at work and we know them in our family structures. We all know them. And for some of you, you may struggle with it yourself. But we also know this, that the cynic is something that people also put on. It's a character flaw. 
It's that, that character flaw that, that whenever something good is happening in someone's life, they speak negative about that individual. It's that character flaw that when you see someone thriving and about to have that huge breakthrough, that, that even when you want to cheer them on and, and be there behind them, you question their motives, their intentions, their credentials. And you really want to know if you struggle with this in your character? It's when you speak to others negatively about someone else. I mean, hey, let's be honest. We're all human, and we all get jealous, and we all have envy, and we all see other people doing different things, and we all say, I want that. Well, why do they have that, and why don't I? But the difference is when our jealousy is vocalized. And we start talking bad about individuals. And we start putting people down. And we start questioning others. And we don't want to see them succeed. And the moment they succeed, we want to squash them. Because they may do better than us. I mean, and let's be honest. When we look at this scene with Jesus, there's both. There's that old grandma that just sees everything negative. Okay? I only say that because I had one of them. I had a very negative grandmother, and I had a very encouraging grandmother. I had a very encouraging grandfather and a very negative grandfather. But you also have that person, that 32-year-old young man who played with Jesus, who was stuck in the fields, who was doing the same old routine, the same grind of life, He knew Jesus. He learned with Jesus. He learned to whittle with Jesus. He learned to build things with Jesus. And now he's stuck in Nazareth. I want to do a little demonstration. So I need a couple volunteers. Maddie, come on up. I need a high schooler. Who's a high schooler that would volunteer? Come on up. I need a college guy to come on up. Ethan. Come join me. And Ethan looks good today. Check out the bow tie. Yeah. I need a college student. Kyle, come on up. Okay, I need an independent adult. Okay, who wants to? Not you, Brandon. You're still in high school. All right. I need an independent adult. Someone in there are 25 to 30s. 25 and 30s. Okay, okay. <laughs> Susie, no. All right, who, who can we have? 25 to 30. Eddie, come on up. Let's line up. What's that? Okay. You're not, how old are you? 24? All right, fine. Okay, now spread out. Okay, now this is where it all makes sense. And now I need someone in their 40s. Who wants to admit that they're in 40s? About 38. No? All right. Someone in their 40s. Come on, we're family here. Here we go. Come on up. Thank you. Now, take a look at these beautiful people. Each person in this room, is going to go through different stages. You're going to go through junior high, and we all know those junior high years, right? Deep breath. And then the high school years. And then the college years. Oh, yeah. What are your college? You're in college, too, both of you. So these guys are just living life right now. No responsibility. The only thing they need to do is make sure they get grades so their parents will pay for their education. Everything's rocking. 
Some of them have to get jobs. Some of them don't. I mean, we could just live right here forever. Who wants to stay here forever? I'm not moving, okay? All right. And then we have that next stage. You graduate college. Do you live at home or do you move out? Yet you have this independency that you've never had before. You're not worried about going to class, but yet you're worried about getting a paycheck. And then you turn 40. I can say this because I'm 40. And you hit the stage where many of you will have families and children and things are going right, and you either exactly want to be in that sweet spot or you're just freaking out. A lot has to do with where your kids are at, correct? Correct. Now think about this. There are many of us that have known people in Maddie's situation. Matter of fact, Eddie, I knew Eddie at Maddie's age. And so I've watched Eddie, he's such a grown man, so special, and I've watched him mature, okay? Some of you know people since high school. And we also know that, there are, that we have watched people at every different stage. We have watched, and I'm not calling you this, Maddie, so don't think this. We have watched the typical knucklehead junior hire all over the place, all over the map, okay? That's what they're supposed to do. Same thing with high school, but you get a little bit more balanced or you go off the deep end. Then there's college, where you're starting to have this, this independency that, that you have every answer in the book, and no matter what someone says, you are right, right? Okay? And then you start having to make a living, and then you have to live life. And the hardest thing is, is that for those individuals who know us from there until now, and there are individuals who have watched the growth of our life that genuinely want to see us succeed. But the reality is this. When someone has known you their whole life, whatever stage they began to know you at, they're stuck. One day, Maddie is going to be a very successful woman. She's going to have a great family. She's going to move to the U.S. permanently, right? No. But for those who've known her since junior high, they're always going to know Maddie as a cute little girl. And she's going to be like, dude, I'm 40 years old. Let's grow up. I'm growing up. You grow up. And the same thing with college and so on and so on. And one of the hardest things that I find myself in at the age of 40 is when those individuals keep me right here in college and high school. You ever get in a fight with your grown-up parents and you say, they treat me like I'm 15. They look at me like I'm in junior high. And I have four kids. And I have a mortgage. And I have this and I'm doing this. But the typical attitude of all is that they get stuck in the stages in which people have known us. You may be seated. Job. And so the cynic gets stuck. They get stuck in junior high school. 
They get stuck in high school. They get stuck in college. And then you become independent, and then you're grown up. And then you're thinking, why can't they enjoy my success? And oftentimes is what happens is this. We run from our pasts, never wanting to go back. Or, we don't listen to any of those voices and we keep pushing ahead. And we say, I'll show them. Or, we stay stuck our whole life. And we wrestle in this tension of always being 15, 17, 21 years old. And more often than not, it's not because of what's going on in here. It's because of the outside influence of others. So what do we do with it? And this is people say, well, the Bible's not relevant. The Bible makes no sense. The, Bible, the Bible's too holier than thou. I mean, think about how honest this is. Think about how realistic this is. Why would the author of Mark find it so important to stick this right here almost in the middle of the book when everything's going right, when everything's going just as planned? Why? Because it's the reality of our life. It's the reality of who we are. And so here's what I want to talk about. This is how we're going to wrap it up. How do we overcome cynicism in our life? And not by how Rob is telling us, but how the Word of God shows it. Real briefly, continue with me. Verse 4, Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and amongst his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Here's what Jesus does. Does he stay there? Does he emotionally fall into this trap? Does he allow the outside forces to determine what is next in God's calling? Then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people, and he called his twelves together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. So here's what Jesus did. First, he recognized his identity as a child of God. He recognized that his identity was not found in who others said he was, but rather that he was God's child, that he was the Son of God, and that no matter what anyone else says, that will not have the power to change or waver his identity as a child of God. And here's what you need to understand. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are a new creation. Listen to this verse. It says here in 2 Corinthians 5.17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. 
The old life is gone. A new life has begun. The moment you invite the Holy Spirit into your life, your identity shifts. It shifts. It shifts from being a sinner and a broken and messed up person to becoming a child of God who struggles and who will be tempted and who will fall but is a child of God. And the moment you invite the Holy Spirit into your life, a new creation is birthed and manifested. And in that, you are no longer determined by your past. But you are identified, not even in your future, but who your Father is, which is God. The big turning point for me in my faith was one summer when I was working summer camp. And every time I messed up, I'm like, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a loser, I'm a failure. I am that 15-year-old that messes up all the time. And I'm never going to change. And my mentor came up to me and said, Rob, let me help clarify something. You are no longer a sinner. That is not your identity. You are a saint. You are set apart. You are consecrated for your God. And yes, you will still sin. Yes, you will still mess up. But your identity is not based on your sinfulness, but on your identity as a child of God. And do you know the moment I embrace that, so much of my baggage and my junk just faded away? I had new baggage and new junk that came into my life, but so much of my past was dealt with because I'm no longer identified by my past behaviors and actions and failures. But I am simply identified as God's child. And he has a plan, and he has a hope, and he has a future. And all I can do is position myself in a posture to embrace that identity and to walk, to be separated for what he has. Will I still sin? Of course I do. Will I still mess up? Always. But I say this, in my life, that if last year I screwed up four million times, and this year I only screw up 3,990,000 times. And each year I consecrate myself before the living God and I set myself apart to hear from Him, to move in Him, to know Him. And slowly I become more and more in tune with who He is. Then I've gotten it. I've gotten that picture of identity. I've recognized that I am no longer identified as a sinner. But I am a saint, meaning I am set apart as his child who will still screw up. And so many of you are stuck. You are stuck with the cynicism of today. You are stuck with the cynicism of the voices of, of the media. You are stuck with the cynicism of your parents. You are stuck with the cynicism of your neighbors. You are stuck with the cynicism of your childhood. And God is saying that if you have the Holy Spirit today, you need to understand you are a new creation. 
And if all of us would embrace that, I am no longer a saint, I am no longer a sinner, but I am a saint who sins. And sometimes I sin wickedly. But you know what? That wickedness is getting taken away. If you would embrace that, you would see so much change. Why? Because I was that guy. And I, I admit I screw up all the time. But I am completely different than who I was. And next, how do we deal with cynicism? We take on the identity as a child of God. And secondly, we move forward. We shut off those lies and we move forward. We don't listen to the voices. We don't listen to those emotions. We don't let our feelings dictate whether or not we're going to embrace the future or not. Because what Jesus did is so unique. He did not step away from Nazareth and say, well, I'm going to show them. He stepped away, repositioned himself with God. And you know what he did? He empowered others to do great things. It was almost like, you know what? I'm going to multiply this. I'm going to make it even more than just me. And this is the first time that we see in the Gospels that Jesus repositions himself and he empowers others to do his work. And we need to do the same. We need to reposition ourselves every time that cynic speaks to us. Every time we hear that negative thought from our soul, from our heart, from our mind, and from others. Because God has so much more in store for you. Here's my challenge to you. The gospel message is simply this. That you are broken. And you are in need of a Savior. And that Savior has come to give us life abundantly. And He has come not only to give us this, this hope, but He came to give us a future. Not a hope, but a future. And in that future, you are given a new identity. You are God's child. You are His chosen one. And you have the presence of the living God living deep within your soul who wants to speak to you, who wants to change you, who wants to allow you to experience more than you can ever imagine. Let me wrap it up real quickly. When I came to Christ, I was 19 years old. I almost didn't graduate high school. I went to Northern Highlands. Had seven Division I football schools looking at me. I had coaches come up and see me. I had birthday cards sent to me. And every one of those scholarships I had to not take because of my grades. So it came time to march and all these schools that were coming up to see me or talking to me or sending me birthday cards, they just cut me off and said, can't touch you, you're Prop 48. We think the Prop 48 kid lives in, lives in Manhattan in the Lower East Side. Well, was I was a Prop 48 kid that lived in Allendale in a beautiful house and drove around a Jeep. And the only reason I came to Christ was I needed a new identity. When Jesus came in my life, it was boom. Huge change. And all the people in my life that I heard, I went back and I apologized to. And I did everything. But I'll never forget the first four years of my life. My friends just, the cynics came out. 
Parents would say stuff. Kids would, my friends even had a bet. One's Rob going to fall? One Rob's going to give up this fad? The first was six months. The next bet was a year. The next bet was three. But by five years, he'll never make it. Remember the first time I ever walked in church, talk about cynicism. Some woman comes up to me and says, I can finally see your eyes. In other words, you're not stoned. I'm like, thanks a lot, knucklehead. What a way to be welcomed into the church. And I just remember getting on my face in my bedroom, just weeping before the Lord, saying, I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm yours. No matter what anyone else says, I'm going to listen to your voice. And it was hard. And it took me five years to climb that mountain. But I know that no matter what happens in my life, I know that no matter what happens in my family, I know that whatever happens in my career, that the only thing that matters most is my identity as a child of God. That's it. For the plan, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper and not to harm. Plans to give you hope and a future. And as many of you are going through this 21-day fast, you're going to want to step away. You're going to want to give up. You're going to see old patterns just pop up. And I'm going to say this, stick with it. Because God has something huge. God has something huge. So here's what I want to do is I know at times I'll open up the floor and say, what's going on in the room? I don't, I don't want to go there today. I want us to think about this. Because that cynical voice is loud. And some of you, as I was speaking, you were thinking of that face of that person, that name of that individual, that, that childhood, that, 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 that menace that you grew up with. We have all have a menace that we grew up with. And God's saying, I want to deal with that this morning. And so this morning, we are going to do a little thing different. We are not going to take communion. We're not taking communion because there's a lot of people sick, and I want to respect all of you. And I don't want to put any of you in a situation that you may catch the flu as well. And so in that, I want to respect each of you. And so we're going to take a time of meditation. Josh is going to lead us in a couple songs of worship. And all I want you to do is give this to the Lord. For you who is stuck, choose to take on that identity. For you who is cynical, give it up. Put it at the feet of Jesus. And for everyone else, let God speak to you in some special way. Let's pray.